Our scripture today is Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more hath the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For it's by the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Carter. Great job, buddy. Well, I was, um, it's good to be back with you. Um, I am typically uh, able to preach the word of God to you, and it's, um, I missed it. And um, I was just this last week in line at Pancake Pantry, as many of you probably, if you go to Pancake Pantry, there's typically a line, and you kind of have to know the, if you are new to Nashville, and uh, you have to navigate the certain times of day to go. And it was unusually longer, and uh, our two boys were running around outside, and you know, you get to kind of know the people in front of you and behind you, and as I was talking to the people in front of us, <clears throat> who uh, seemed eager and excited uh, to have pancakes, I struck up a conversation with them and, and said, uh, you know, where, where are you from? We're from Canada, you know, they're from Canada coming down here to visit, and, and they had to go to pantry, and uh, you know, as... Many of you would have, if you meet somebody visiting um, in town, you say things like, hey, we have great restaurants. We have these great um, places to go visit. We have great music. You know, you start elaborating on that. Um, you know, I was also watching the World Series. And I was watching the World Series, and I'm cheering for the Houston Astros. It doesn't matter anything to you, probably. But, you know, after that, it's interesting when you talk to certain people and you say, you talk about the game, and uh, as I watched last night in complete lament uh, of us just blowing this, you know, game, uh, you know, people ask, they say, well, how'd it go? And I say, well, we lost it in the eighth inning, and, you know, in seventh inning, actually, we lost that big time, and, and it just kind of went downhill from there. And, you know, when other people come to you, maybe, maybe you're visiting this morning, or maybe you're new to Nashville, and you're asking people about... Uh, the great, incredible artists that we have here in Nashville, the m entertainment music industry that really brings so much to our city and life. And when people ask about it, they say, well, and you ask me or someone else, they say, we have such great uh, composers, musicians here in the city, songwriters, we have them. What's the common thread? You hear me telling these stories. Have you ever noticed this? 
we use this language of possession in all of those. Did you notice every time I was in a conversation, I was saying, we have, or I have. Now, when the Astros lost, did I actually lose the game? No. Do, do I actually have musicians at my house? Like, I have these music. No, no I don't have the music in my house. The only taste I have is in my mouth, honestly. I have no music. I'm better at that. Brett can make fun of me all he wants for that. Um, but what do I have? Why do we use that language? We use that language every day to talk about our city, to talk about our teams, to talk about uh, relationships we have. Why do we use that possessive language? We use it because we all understand we like to have representatives. We like to identify with someone or something that gives us something. We have this. Our city has this. I have this. We say that because it's language that expresses a representative, representative that we want to identify with. When somebody thinks of this, we want them to know that we're associated with it. The Bible is very similar in this way. This passage you just heard is exactly that. The, the, the Bible really expresses from cover to cover this idea of representation. That there is a person who represents a person's. That there, as it goes along, there's a, a possessive language to it. So you heard over and over the one man and then the man, the one man, then the man. And this representation that runs through this chapter, this passage in this chapter, actually draws that out in huge ways. We're looking right now at what are called anchor doctrines of the faith. Uh, if you look at the cover of your bulletin, it says that. You can look at the cool graphics of the trees, anchor doctrines of the faith, right? What are we saying? We're saying that there are huge, massive things to understand of what it means to be a Christian. And I will tell you this. If there is one doctrine that is enormous to understand, it is the idea of covenant representation, meaning that God's relationship through specific people in the Bible is key to our relationship to him. Representation. It is all through the scriptures. This passage, it may be, be talking, it's talking about Adam and Jesus. I'm going to open up. There it is. It's, there's no surprise there. Adam and Jesus. But it's also saying in every single person in between, there was a represent, representative for all of God's people. But the main people, Adam and Jesus, were set up as these representatives. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to look simply that, at the idea of this huge thing embedded in the scriptures, but also really embedded in our need to be represented by someone we can trust. So we're going to look first at the representative we all have, and then we're going to look at the representative we all need. The one we have, and then the one we all need. If you look here in this passage, the representative we all have, Paul wastes no time. He says, therefore, just as sin entered in the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. He's beginning right out of the gate to say one man. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about the beginning of the Bible. And even if you're here this morning and maybe uh, you, you, you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you haven't really read it, you may have heard of who Adam is, this character who is incredibly important about to uh, the Bible and to Christianity 
about how sin is a part of our daily life. How is sin with us? The Old Testament, the Jewish people really took this to heart. Old Testament narratives and scripture was really big on representation. Really big on this. So when Paul's writing this, the people reading would say, gosh, we have one man that, that's, that's our representative. I know this. I've heard of this. Even if he was writing to people who were not of uh, Jewish descent, they would say, there's one person that has set this up. And, and in some ways, what he's saying here is, now we need to understand this, that Adam is a real person. Notice this, verse 14, it says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. In other words, the word pattern there is taken out to say, there is a type, Adam being the first, of this pattern of those who would come after him to connect to our, as representatives of our, our sin and our relationship to God. But Adam being the first, that he's real, as real as our sin is, and I can't dive into this too much, there is somewhat of a discussion these days on is Adam a real person? The question to me is, is sin real? And secondly, is Jesus real? If those two things are real, then Adam must be more than just a representative figure. He must be a representative fig real figure. There must be an actuality to him as much as to our sin. And the idea of this comes in what's interesting, covenant, covenant relationship. A word covenant is actually in the Bible a lot more than you think it is. In fact, the word testament, Old Testament and New Testament mean old covenant and new covenant. And what it meant was there was a relationship, a contract made with one person that would bring with it all sorts of both vows to keep your end of the deal and possibly consequences for breaking those. So we do this often today. When I send, when I meet with um, people for premarital counseling, what I send them is I send them a wedding packet. And in that packet, I'll send a form structure, a ceremony, if you will, of a wedding. And if you've been to a wedding, which I would assume most of you have been, you see this exact structure. Actually, these, this, what is set up? There's an introduction, right? There are these vows given, these vows, I will do this until what? Death do us part, we'll do this upon these things and consequences if they're broken and sealed at the end with usually a benediction of type. It's not just a worship service, it's a ceremony saying this is a relationship forged together. This is what God was doing with Adam. In the beginning, God created this relationship with him. It wasn't just a somewhat kind of, you know, out there kind of friendship. It was a deep binding contract. And in fact, it, he was saying to him, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this would ring throughout the pages of the Bible. In fact, this isn't really too far from our idea of covenant. In fact, uh, in the New York Times itself, there was an article written by David Brooks some time ago <clears throat> called How Covenants Make Us. Really interesting thing. Just talking about the fabric of our society of covenant. Listen to what he says. Uh, in her new book, Commonwealth and Covenant, Marcia Pali of NYU, an NYU uh, professor in Fordham, offers a clarifying concept. What we want, she suggests, is separability and situated, situatedness. 
We want to go off and create and explore and experiment with new ways of thinking and living. But we also want to be situated, embedded in loving families and enveloping communities, thriving within a healthy cultural infrastructure that provides us with values and goals. He goes on to say, creating situatedness requires a different way of thinking. When we go out and, and, and do a deal, we make a contract. See this discussion of covenant. When we are situated within something, it is because we have made a covenant. A contract protects interests, Pally notes, but a covenant protects relationships. A covenant exists between people who understand that they are part of one another. This is in the New York Times. It's saying that covenants, relationships that we make on a daily basis mean that we want to be integrated. Remember what I was talking about a minute ago about what does it mean to have friendships? We do this even unspoken in our relationships. We have relationships that are woven into the fabric of our society about what is it like for me to enter into a friendship with you? It means, yeah, I'm gonna take an unspoken vow that I'm gonna commit my time to you resources, care. And when we hurt each other, it seems as though those vows are broken. Sometimes a broken friendship can be so much so that the consequences are there is no repair of that friendship. You feel the weight of that. That is what we see on a, on a, on a basis here with Adam. It is saying in terms of Adam being the one, the representative set up in relationship to God in, in, in such a way that he was the representative for all of us, whether we want him to be or not, unfortunately, that we receive all of the detriment of his bad choices, his consequences. We are now sinners. It doesn't mean we saw him sin it's not saying all sinned. In other words, we saw him make a bad choice and now we do it. It means everything is passed down to us. Like, not unlike, children as myself of divorce. I'm a child of a divorce. And there are things that no matter what I do, because of the broken relationship, that marital covenant that my parents no longer have, I have received consequence from that. And I live with that. And I deal with that. And still to this day as a husband and father of older children, I still deal with that. That is where we are. Adam's relationship, in fact, God uses marital language all through the Bible. The Old Testament, if you read it, and it talks about Israel and the people of God, he uses this word unfaithful to say, you have been unfaithful to me. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying, your relationship to me is that of a marriage. And when you do that, you are breaking the covenant vows of when you came forward with me and did the ceremony, the wedding ceremony. You are taking those on. That's what is being said here of us. But God is saying, is through this representative, <clears throat> that Adam is, is, is the one set up for us. And what came in with him is sin and death. It says here, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Sin and death came in. You know those little dolls? I cannot remember the name of them. When you take one, the lid off of one, there's a smaller one inside. What are those called again? I can't. 
Yeah, yeah, okay. So, the, you know, when you take the, I, I couldn't hear. Yeah, what, what they said. Uh, so when you take the lid off, right, there's another. That's exactly what's being said. You have this framework of Adam. When he sinned, sin entered into the world. When sin entered, death came with it. It's all a part of that one. So it's a package deal. And here's what's interesting about this. That his disobedience affects us whether we like it or not. We need to understand that what's being said here. Many of us may say, okay, maybe you're here, let's just granted say, maybe you're here and to the effect that you say, okay, sin, I don't, I don't know. And the law, yeah, okay, I see bad things about myself, but I don't really hold myself to the standard, the law of God. This is saying it doesn't actually matter. It's saying death came in too. All of us, whether we would say we follow God's law or not, that death itself, the greatest enemy, the greatest weapon sin wields against us is something we all face. And so we all have to admit that there's some representative, someone, death was brought in. It is unnatural. We're actually, we know that. This is why we fight against death all the time. Because we know that we're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to see ourselves age in the things that happen to us physically and emotionally and mentally. It is actually, as much as we say it's natural, it actually, the Bible's saying no, it's actually not. And in our core, we know that. We know that we don't want to die and that we're not supposed to. There's something wrong about it. And even if, if with that, Paul is saying, let's work backwards to our sin. Working backwards to say, all have sinned. We are part of this, this sin. And we're gonna unpack this next week. We're actually gonna look at sin in, in its entirety. We're gonna really look at that. So I'm gonna do a little less discussion on that this morning. But we know how sin has affected us generally and specifically. Now, many of us, and I like this article that I read from the Huffington Post that talks about how most of us think of sin. Paradoxically, is said, one of the obstacles in communicating what belief feels like to those who do not share it is that our culture is so thoroughly smudged over with half-legible religious scribbling the vocabulary that is used to describe religious emotions, though, hasn't gone away. It's still in circulation, but repurposed with new meanings that make people think that they know what believers or Christians may be talking about when they really, really don't. Case in point, the word sin. It is easy for us to talk about sin, and I'll briefly talk about it, this sin as in something that we just kind of want. Maybe something we talk about during Lent, of I guess sin is my desire to have chocolate or my desire for maybe other things and sexuality or other things that we think we put in that category. But sin actually has a much broader take. Sin is something that generally affects all of us in the way that we are corrupt, in the way that we have parts of us that are bent, maybe woven differently than others towards specific things. And yet it says that we all want to say to God, no thanks. It, we all want to look to him and say, I can do this on my own. Exactly what Adam did in the garden. That, that story, that description is exactly it. That our representative shows us both generally and specifically. And we see it in his children, Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Sin comes right into the picture of how it affects his kids. If you want to know the, the, the truth of that, even that divorce between them and God shows sin how it comes into their children. 
when Cain attacks Abel himself. And it talks, even gives a personality of sin. It describes its depth. We have to ask ask ourselves, are we honest about the effects and reality of sin in us? Not just the religious speak, as the Huffington Post says, that is really kind of out there. Sin, you can find all sorts of weird definitions for that. But actually definitions that hit to our core. So what about, if that's the representative we all have, if that's the truth, the reality, that death is there, there is a representative that brought death into the picture for us through his sin, there is a reality to that. We have to ask the question, how do we get past that? Paul moves into that immediately. He says, there is a representative that we all need. And he says, it comes through this in verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. The gift is that the grace that came through one man, that is Jesus. In verse 14, again, right above that, it says, there's a hint of this. There's a pattern of one to come. The Adam was a type. The word pattern is actually a word that means typos in Greek. And typos meaning type that layered in the Bible, starting with Genesis 3.15, right after sin came in, the third chapter of the Bible, sin is talked about in a way that says, there will be one who comes to reverse this curse. There's a promise given. And from that point on, everyone is looking for this person. Adam and Eve even named their children Hebraic names that point in this direction. Is this the one? Is this the one? Constantly people are asking that question. They ask it of Noah. They ask it of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, All these characters that maybe you've heard before are all representatives of, is this one going to be the one? Moses, is he going to be, David, is he going to be the one? Who is the one that's going to come to reverse this curse? Who will make it all right? Megan makes fun of me sometimes because I am a uh, superhero nerd. I love to watch superhero stuff, but I think it's fascinating to me, the interest in superhero stuff. Uh, And there's a reason for that. I think it, it, it touches back, and y'all are going to be like, come on, he's really drunk. No, th- think about this for a minute. We are fascinated with it, and we can't get enough. The, the, the money that's spent on making these movies and the amount of people that are really into them, some of you may not be into them, but you, you've got to ask the question, why is it such a part of our fabric of our culture? Christopher Nolan, who uh, did the original uh, tr- Batman trilogy that kind of ushered in all of this fandom for um, <clears throat> superhero movies, with uh, Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Trilogy. He was interviewed because he was an executive producer for uh, Superman, the new Superman movie that came out called Man of Steel. And so it was kind of coming up after Batman. Everybody was kind of going, man, really excited. All these new movies are coming out after that. It was interesting what he said, though, when he was asked about how, how are, how's Superman going to fare? How are all these new movies going to fare compared to the need of all these people loved the Batman trilogy? He said this, this is not a revisiting of the Dark Knight series. And yet to make a character like Superman relatable and relevant to people today is a much different task. And one of the things he was describing in this interview, in this article, was the fact that we are longing to have a champion We're longing for this. In fact, if you go back and you look at people like C.S. Lewis, for instance. C.S. Lewis, who was not at one point a Christian, and what brought him to faith in Jesus was his conversations to J.R. Tolkien and others who wrote things like Lord of the Rings, his friends, 
who are saying all these things, you're a professor, Lewis. You teach all these Norse mythologies. You teach all of these incredible stories of gods who can come and rescue, of people who are champions for others. But you realize that they're all pointing to a reality. They're all pointing to one story, a relatable one, a one that hits where you are. And do you know that actually is what brought C.S. Lewis to faith? It was the fact that he had to reconcile the fact that everything he was studying, all the, all the myths, all the stories were pointing to a real story. And I have to say to you that I think we are infatuated with superheroes for the sake, and we, even if they aren't superheroes, with some sort of hero in our concept, someone who is going to make change, someone who we can actually kind of look up to, even if it's fascination, even if it's on a movie screen, that we like it because it touches our story. It causes us to go, is there something relatable to me here that can bring us out of the depth and destruction we're in? That is what Paul is doing here, that there is one man set up. He's saying there's a rep, a representative that we need that can fulfill the broken relationship that has been made between us and God in the first man that the story is true. And he doesn't just say it in one thing. I think, and this is where I really wanna finish this morning, is you and I need to hear this, this concept that you heard at the end of this, that just as sin, in verse 21, reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. That but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, verse 20. Do we really believe that? That is a massive question. Do we really believe that grace increased all the more? Do do we believe the fact that, that in the depth of my sin, what I see around me, that his grace, what he has done, Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, affects all of the sin I see in myself specifically and generally in the world? Does it go beyond it? Do you realize his comparison, Paul's comparison to Jesus here is not a one-to-one correlation. It's not like Adam set up and made this mess and Jesus comes in and just cleans it up. It's saying that the grace so overwhelms it that it transforms the first man's sin in us. Do we believe that? And he goes so far as to ask even five questions of this in here and layer it five different ways. And, and, and for our sake this morning, some of those are, are together in one. He even begins in verse 15 by saying, many died, grace overflows to the many. And he's not concerned so much with the, the number when he says many, but he's asking us the question, is the transfer from the second representative, is this representative strong enough in his representation of us for his grace to overwhelm our sin? Can we believe that? I remember sitting with a woman who I was talking to about the reality of grace and the reality of what it means for that to work out. And I remember her saying to me, this would never work in day-to-day life. Like I see all the mess, I can, I can actually believe that there's a sin and mess and, and brokenness around me, but is, could, could grace actually be that applicable? Could it be that powerful? Because I don't know if that would work. Many of you are in jobs where if you were to believe grace is that powerful, that it could get you fired. That if you thought grace was that 
efficient, that applicable to your day-to-day, it could actually affect the way that your workers, coworkers see you. Is grace that applicable over the sin that we see in ourselves? The way we categorize our sin. Look, we need to understand that this second Adam, the one who is set up, if he is not as real as our sin, if in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in his flesh, he comes in to give us something much greater that has to. If it doesn't cancel our sin, Paul says later on in one of his letters, he says what we're doing in here is act pretty, kind of ridiculous. If we don't believe this, if he, doesn't really, if he didn't really do this, we, we're kind of left in our sin. He says in verse 16, He says, nor can the gift be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment follows the sin and brought condemnation. It it, it brought this overwhelming grace upon all the things that you think specifically. That there's no way in your shame, in your guilt, that Jesus could cover. One of my favorite lines from Flannery O'Connor, she's a Southern uh, writer who I, I just love, she spoke about one of her, um, one of her characters called Hazel, from uh, Hazel Moat. And he said this description of, um, of Hazel. He could escape Jesus by avoiding sin until the day he convinced himself sin was non-existent. That line has haunted me because for me, it is so easy for me in my heart to see specific sins, see certain ones, and I'm like, yeah, Jesus can cover that. But then there are real sins that I brush up against day after day that cause such deep shame in me. And you know what I'm talking about because you have them too. They're not the ones where you do something and, and it kind of is a fleeting, oh man, I messed up. It's the ones that you see are such woven patterns in you that creates such shame or guilt that you, that you work overtime to try and either avoid them or to change yourself by them with certain, certain patterns. But this is saying that there's just only one pattern that could do that. Verse 14 says, it's a pattern of the one who come. The only pattern, the only type who could take care of it is Jesus. He is one. You need to feel, you need to experience the overwhelming grace that comes over that sin in the immediate moment that you feel the shame that you are distant from God or alone from everyone else. God is saying his grace overwhelms that. It is not a matter of your opinion. It is not a matter of your shame being strong or weak. It is a matter of the work of the pattern of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That it followed, it says, but the gift followed many trespasses. It means every trespass that goes forward, the grace followed and overwhelmed it. Every single one. Guys, we cannot walk out of here unless we understand that in Jesus, it is a whole different ballgame. Whole different ballgame of who we are. Because in this second Adam is the only way that we can know that we are fully forgiven and live in light of that. Look, there's a table set before me here. And this table says something huge. It says the fact that 
We have a representative that gave his body and blood for this table. And that it is through him, through our Lord Jesus, that we are able to come to this table. It is a reality of your sin being dealt with. I love to watch uh, 30 for 30. These are those doc, sports documentaries. Don't know if you've seen it. Uh, ESPN has put those out for some time. And I remember watching when the Winter Olympics are coming up. And so they're putting out some of those. And there's one called The Price of Gold. And it's, uh, some of you may have seen it. It's, it's hearkening back to the 94 Winter Olympics when Nancy Kerrigan and, and Tanya Harding were skating. If you've never heard this story, there was a great rivalry between them. And at some point, Tanya Harding, uh, it's you know, unknown but known, that her ex-husband uh, took a crowbar after a practice and attacked Nancy Kerrigan, hitting her in the knee to take her out. And I remember us watching that and seeing just the anguish, and they really interviewed Tanya Harding a lot. And you could see just over and over as they're interviewing her, having to replay her sin over and over on the screen knowingly for everybody to talk about. I remember sitting with my wife and her making such a great comment about that, saying, can you imagine if your entire life in a documentary was about the one sin that you've committed? Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, that, that, that's you. Do you realize that when you're coming to this table, you're bringing that documentary of you? And what you're coming to is a representative that we have who has overwhelmed that here. This is his story. His story that swallows up your story. You are allowed to eat and drink. In fact, covenants and some historical markers were made where you actually were able to sit at a table and when you slid your knees underneath a table, you were entering into a relationship with the person who set the table. That's what we're doing here. Coming to this table means it was set by his body and blood. If you're here this morning and you kind of think, I still am stuck only with that first representative. I think I can power my way through sin and death. I think I can handle it. I would encourage you not to come forward and take this. Don't come forward and take the body and blood of that second Adam, Jesus Christ, and and say, uh, yeah, I'll I'll take it just because I'm here. Show integrity for your own heart and say, I really want to contemplate what does it mean for his grace to overwhelm my sin, my documentary, my self on that screen? What does that mean? If you're here and you would say you follow him, you need, this is the representative we all need. I don't set this table. Jesus sets this table for us. We need this representative for us. Let's stand now and let's proclaim this truth to our representative, Jesus Christ.